It is so good to see you. Grateful that you're here with us. Um, yesterday, I made gingerbread with my kids. Is this a tradition in your house? Oh my gosh, we did the whole thing. We made the gingerbread houses. It's becoming a tradition in our family, and I'm really not sure why. It turned into this huge mess. First of all, I was getting like all neurotic about how the gingerbread pieces were coming together, which I know just sounds super insane. You'd think I was like an architect by how much I cared about how like the gingerbread came together and how like the frosting was like holding the roof on, which of course it did not. It was like a whole thing. But then my kids were noticing how like I was on this little OCD spiral and they were noticing like how focused I was on the gingerbread that they like seized the opportunity to sort of like sneak all of the gumballs and like swipe the frosting with their fingers and lick it and all of that. It went all downhill from there. And um, all of a sudden I just kind of woke up and I was like, like coming out of a bad dream, I'm like, there's broken gingerbread everywhere. And I'm like, like, what is this tradition all about? Like, what does this have to do with the birth of Jesus? Like, absolutely nothing. Uh, and in a nutshell, that story is emblematic of why we celebrate uh, Advent. And we join in with the global church uh, to practice Advent. It's really, really simple. If it were not for Advent, we'd probably be spending a lot of our time this month sort of mindlessly engaging in all of our cultural traditions, like decorating the house or watching holiday movies or shopping the sales and, of course, eating way too much chocolate and sweets and stuff like that. But we'd be leaving out the meaningful origins of those traditions. Gift-giving, for example, was inspired by St. Nicholas, who's motivated by the love of Jesus to memorialize his birth, by taking care of the poor and by honoring dishonored members of the community. The holiday meal is inspired by a sense of celebration, good news, and great joy for all people. The Savior's been born today. So in other words, let's just make all the best food. Let's get together and throw a massive party, right? So Advent is this season every year where we contemplate Jesus' birth. And it's meant to play like an important role in re-engaging you and re-anchoring you in that story, that will really make your heart come alive. So in summary, like enjoy the Grinch who stole Christmas, right? And make gingerbread houses if you dare. Um, but, at, at, but also, let's spend time this season just engaging and contemplating how the birth of Jesus changes everything. And last week, um, we celebrated the first Sunday of Advent, where we talk about how Jesus brings us life-altering hope. And then today, we're talking about how he brings us peace. Peace on earth and peace like deep within us. And particularly with the horrors that are happening in the Ukraine right now, wouldn't you agree that peace is what our world needs a lot more of right now? And those of you who've spent your life celebrating Advent you probably knew that this was coming today. You, you probably could have predicted the scripture reading from Isaiah 9, which let me just reread for you right now. To us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In other words, we're not left to ourselves to try and like figure this out or to achieve world peace by our progress. It's not working. It wouldn't work. There is actually going to be a prince who, when he comes, he's going to reign with peace. He's going to carry it with him. 
But even if this is a relatively new practice for you, celebrating Advent, you probably expected peace to be like a part of the theming of Advent. It's in like all of the songs, and it's also on practically all of the decorations for sale at Hobby Lobby right now. I wouldn't know. I haven't been to Hobby Lobby in like three years since my wife sent me there, and I begged her to never send me back. And she's kind. She never has, but I'm just guessing. I think it's a pretty sure bet that there's lots of glittery signage that says peace on it right now at Hobby Lobby. But even though we know that this theme of peace is coming, the way that Jesus brings us peace is so unexpected and so surprising. So surprising. There's no way that any of us have exhausted this theme or even come close. So do you remember on, on page one of what our Bible calls the New Testament, it's Matthew chapter one, and it's the opening lines of what the Bible calls gospel or good news. All right, so it's bound to be pretty punchy, right? It's supposed to be pretty punchy. If it's the first lines of uh, what the gospel calls good news. Well, it's actually a genealogy. It's 42 generations of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so who was the father of so-and-so. 42 times, and then finally there's Jesus, right? This is why so many people are sort of disillusioned and confused by, maybe even disinterested in some of the details of scripture. But there is so, so much gold, you guys, in those couple of chapters, Matthews, well, Matthew 1 and 2. And one of those details is that there are four women who are listed in Jesus' genealogy. There's Mary, Tamar, Ruth, and Rahab, which may not seem like a very important detail to you, but keep in mind that this was a honor-shame patrilineal society, which meant that for your status, and certainly for the status and credibility of the Messiah, who Matthew is writing about, it's all about your father's bloodline. That's where you found legitimacy and status in society was from your, your father's bloodline. So instead of having a last name, you would have a surname. For example, David of Jesse in Bethlehem. And that's how you referred to yourself. And as sad as it is to say, it almost didn't matter who your mother was as long as she was Jewish. Except in Jesus' genealogy, the mothers mattered which I absolutely love because even in the story of his birth, Jesus is elevating women and he's bringing equality, which is an element of his peace. It can't be shalom if some people are still second class. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. So there's women in Jesus' genealogy and they matter, which is scandalous all by itself in, in the first century. But some of the women that are listed as the mothers of Messiah, they're not even Jewish. Even one of them is a prostitute. Let that sink in for a minute. You see how, see what I mean about unexpected and surprising. The Christmas story of how Jesus is bringing peace begins in a prostitute's house in Jericho during wartime. Let that sink in. That is wild to think about. And it's this woman named Rahab. Now, let me just give you the, the, the fuller picture here. Rahab lived during the time of Joshua when Israel was taking possession of the land that God had promised them about 500 years prior when he promised this land to Abraham. Most of you know the story. Uh, the family of God was enslaved in Egypt until God m made this promise or came to Moses and said, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. To make a super long story short, 
Uh, Pharaoh puts up a fight, but eventually he caves underneath the undeniable and unmatched power and presence of God. And so Israel is finally free to worship God, and it's this really beautiful thing. And about 40 years go by where Israel is essentially living in tents in the desert, and then God selects Moses' protege named Joshua to succeed him and to actually lead Israel into le- to the land of promise, which that was like the whole Hebrew paradigm uh, of living in relationship with God. It revolved around this promise of occupying the land that God had promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. So that's what was going on. But the catch was, as you already know, most of you anyways, that this land that God had promised Abraham, it was already occupied by several rival kingdoms. And before ousting those rival kingdoms by Joshua and the Israelite army, God was giving these rival nations like hundreds, centuries really, uh, of patience uh, in, order to, in order for them to repent and turn to God. And of course, that's not unfortunately the story. And so therefore, God sends Israel in to occupy the land that God had promised. And the book of Joshua begins with God speaking and he speaks in a lot of the same ways that he spoke to Moses. And that, that recurring line that we see in Joshua chapter 1 is, be, be very strong, be very courageous, for I'm with you wherever you go. So that is the moment. That is the moment of Rahab. But her context and her backstory is so very different. And we don't really know a whole lot about her life, but we do know that she was a prostitute. That's one of the things that the Bible tells us about her which is not any little girl's dream uh, to grow up and to become. It's so dehumanizing and it's such an unsafe job, which probably meant that all of her relationships were affected by that. Her family was probably ashamed of her vocation. Her community looked down on her as one of the outcasts. Men only cared about one thing. And yet God used her profoundly in the story of God's victory. He used her profoundly. So let's think about that for a bit. Um, Put yourselves in her shoes, if you could, for a moment. Since prostitution is not anyone's first choice of of making a living, that tells us something about her backstory and what she'd been through. She'd probably been dealt a very bad hand. She's experienced more than her fair share of, 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 of pain and suffering. She probably didn't have an innocent or safe childhood. And so she wound up in this profession I remember a long time ago, I was with a handful of friends and we were in Vancouver, British Columbia, and we were at a stoplight and this woman approached the car and I had no clue what was going on, and then it turned out she was actually a prostitute and she was wondering if we were looking. And I remember, uh, initially, I uh, would have ordinarily been quite judgmental of, uh, of, of someone in that job and in that position, but her face told this story of betrayal and hurt and suffering, and it was palpable that she had no sense of self-worth, and I could see it in her eyes. She didn't have any sense of hope or any sense of belonging in a community or anything like that, and it was just like literally such a vivid memory for me because of what I saw in her eyes, and fortunately, we were able to actually introduce her to Jesus. We saw her actually get healed of chronic pain all throughout her body, and she trusted in Jesus as king that day, and it was like this incredible reversal, this incredible thing um, that is still marked me to this day, 
And it's why, one of the main reasons why I still continue to pray for healing. And we're, we've seen a number of people healed. We've seen um, uh, someone healed of back pain this, just this last week, which is remarkable. Um, but I remember this being a very formative experience in my early adulthood where I saw this woman who ordinarily I might judge, but looking in her face, I could see that there was more to the story that I did not understand, but Jesus' love transformed her. So when I picture Rahab, and I hope you can see her in this light too, we can actually have some compassion and some empathy because of the expression on that woman's face and, and, and others that you may know. So again, Rahab is this prostitute, but she's also non-Jewish, so she doesn't know Abraham's visions, she doesn't know the story of God or anything like that. All that she knew is that there was this band of slaves from Egypt who, despite being very small and very impoverished, they bested Egypt, the most powerful empire at the time, unequivocally undisputed. And the word was spreading that their God, Yahweh, was going before them and was fighting for them. And now they've showed up on her doorstep, the doorstep of, of Jericho. And this is what the scripture says in Joshua chapter 2. It says that Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies. Go and look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. And the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come tonight to spy out this land. And so the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they've come to spy out the whole land. Okay, so picture that you're Rahab for, the, for just a moment and think about the tight spot that she's been put in. Either lie to the king, which I would imagine would have some really negative ramifications, or uh, risk getting on the bad side of the God who defeated Pharaoh, right? This is her option. This is her choice. It's a tough situation for, for Rahab or for anyone to be in. By the way, what do you think the spies are doing at the brothel? Like when they come to spy out the land. Like I don't know if they have a great explanation for that. The Bible doesn't give us one. But anyways, let's keep reading. Verse 4 says, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way that they went. Go after them quickly, and you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So again, Rahab is this really scrappy, really clever character, and she's quick on her feet. She decides to lie to her king. So this would be a, like a really interesting passage to study in ethics class, right? She's lying to the king, but it's for this other purpose. And from a biblical perspective, Rahab made the right call by lying to the king. And it was risky. She was already a social outcast. And this actually made her a dangerous criminal. But because of her bravery, the spies, they lived to tell the story to Joshua. And eventually the peace of God comes to this region. And this is just another example, one of many examples of women acting heroically in the story of God. And Rahab, the non-Jewish prostitute, is one of them. So let's keep reading. The story goes on. In verse 8 it says this, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. 
And a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. So if we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. In other words, she's saying, God, we have heard of your God's fame. We've heard the stories about him. So Rahab doesn't have much knowledge about Yahweh, but she knows enough. She knows that he's powerful. She knows that he's giving Jericho to his people, and that's freaking everyone else out. But it leads her to a different conclusion. Your God is the God of heaven and earth, and it's evident to her that he is the one true God. And so she sees something else in Yahweh too, and that gives her another idea. Again, she's resourceful, clever, and she's quick on her feet, and so this is what she does. She seizes her opportunity. Verse 12, it says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, they replied. So the men assured her, if you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she led them down by a rope through the window, for the house that she lived in was a part of the city wall. Okay, this is a... Maybe a familiar story to some of you. I just find it so awesome and incredible, and it's so wrapped up into the story of Jesus' advent. Rahab is like brokering a deal for herself and her family. And she sees what others are not willing to see or able to see, that Yahweh is higher than the other gods, and she comes to him, or she pleads to him for mercy. And that, my friends, is what the Bible calls faith. God honors her for that faith. Remember Hebrews 11.6, says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. But anyone who comes to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. So God rewards real faith. Then the rest of Hebrews 11 is a bunch of Jewish guys who, against all odds, embody faith in God when it really counts, except for one exception. And that one exception of the long line of Jewish guys who embodied uh, faith is... Rahab, verse 31, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies in peace, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So essentially, this non-Jewish woman, the Holy Spirit is remembering and honoring as an example of great faith. It's incredible, and it tells us a lot about who God is, what he's looking for in us, and it also tells us a lot about Rahab. So Rahab, first of all, is a woman who is willing to wager her life and reputation on a God that she did not know. Up until this point, she did not know him. And it was super risky. That's why it was a faith decision. That's why the Holy Spirit is honoring her thousands of years later in Hebrews chapter 11. And it stood in opposition to religious traditions of her heritage and everything else. It was betrayal and disloyalty to her own people and to her king. But it was a deliberate and it was a very conscious faith decision on her part. She was greatly rewarded for it. And when Jericho falls, all of her family is spared and is safe. And they join in with the victory of Yahweh. Which leads us to point two. 
Although Rahab wagered her life and reputation on God she didn't know, she acted on what she did know about him. So, so the little that she did know about him, she acted on. Remember verse 11 says, For the Lord your God is the God in heaven above and on earth below. She understood that God is a powerful God. He has authority. He's ultimately going to get his way. And she's saying, I don't want to be on the other side of that. I don't want to be opposed to him. I don't want to be on the wrong side of his story or history. And everyone else is afraid. Everyone else, and to be fair, they're totally right to be afraid. Their fear was appropriate. She had a fear of God too, but it led her to a different kind of conclusion. I wonder if this powerful God is merciful. Like this God is going to get what he wants done, done. But if I turn to him, Will he be merciful to me? Will he accept me? So she believed in his power and she believed that it was redemptive. She hoped that his agenda was good and that this was like the redemption or the revelation that she was longing for. And I think this is one of the questions that we ask ourselves during Advent is to sort of recommit ourselves to this God who is both powerful and loving. He has all authority, but he's also merciful. And that's what this whole season is about, is reconnecting us with the glory of that God He's not just a God who has all authority. He's a God who loves you passionately and happens to be merciful. And Rahab, because of her foresight and because of her great faith and because she was quick on her feet and she seized her opportunity, she trusted in that God and pled for mercy and she got it. And she got not only that, but she also got the peace of God. She got forgiveness and then she was honored in the lineage of Jesus. She longed for the right stuff, turned to the right person. And three, this is the final thought for, for right now. And that is that Rahab was a peacemaker, right? She took in these men. And she took in these men on the risk of her own life, hiding fugitives so that they would be spared from death. That's making peace. This is like an Anne Frank, Harriet Tubman, Dietrich Bonhoeffer type story of someone willing to stick their neck out to, in order to save others. This reminds me of uh, the great beatitude from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacekeepers, or the peacemakers, excuse me, because they will be called children of God. And that promise could not be more true um, than of Rahab. And so here's what God does for Rahab. So we learn uh, these things about her, but this is what God does for her. God actually rewrites her story. God gives her a new name. She had been a disgrace. She had been far from God, but now she's given honor by God. Now she's actually accepted in the family. And the ultimate honor that she could have received is that she would be included, that she would show up in Matthew chapter one in the genealogy of the Messiah, which according to the rules and conventions of the day, she did not belong there at all. But the gospel writer is intentionally including her because God is giving her this new name. She was Rahab the, pro the prostitute, but now in, in Matthew chapter one, she's Rahab the mother of Boaz or Rahab the mother of Messiah. Right here it is, right? In Matthew chapter one in verse five and six. There she is, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And there she is, right there in the genealogy of Jesus. So in a world where bloodline is everything, the person that we'd least expect is right there in the middle of it all. So as I was getting ready to prepare this message and just thinking about and admiring Rahab for her faith and how her faith brought peace to her family and ultimately brought peace to the world, 
it just made me think of this line out of 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And then verse 10 says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I love this. So because Rahab was willing to trust God, she's now adopted into the family. And this is your story too, or at least it can be your story too, if you follow Rahab's example of trusting in him. I guess one thing for us to consider as we close here is that it's never too late to accept Jesus' invitation. I was talking with a man not too long ago who is in his 40s, and he said, I don't know, I've lived a lot of life, I've done a lot of things wrong. Do you think that Jesus would still accept me? And the reality is that you're never too far gone. You've never made too many mistakes to be forgiven of your sin and to be accepted in God's family. I like to say that Jesus is better at saving than we are at sinning. He's just better at it. Meaning that, If we turn to him and trust in his invitation, then we receive the same forgiveness, the same mercy that Rahab did. And over this last year, we've seen just an increase of you who've been convicted of lifestyles of sin, patterns of sin that you felt enslaved to. And so we've been talking with you about that. We've been spiritually directing you and pastoring you through that. And what I'm finding is just to be reminded again of God's forgiveness that we have in Jesus, and it's amazing. So I would just say to anyone who walked in here today feeling stuck in a pattern of sin or wondering if you're worthy of God's love, that Rahab's the prime example of how when you turn to God, it's never, ever too late. God didn't hold Rahab's day job against her. When she trusted in God, she was forgiven and accepted. And of course, her entire life changed after that. And that invitation is extended to any and all of us who would trust in him. This also includes people who you have written off. We love to think of ourselves, and we love to think of how God's invitation of grace extends to us. But what if the part of our, a part of our celebration at Christmas was actually looking for God in all of the unexpected places, bringing salvation to people that we've written off or the people that we would least expect. That is definitely baked in to the story of Jesus and to the story of his birth. So the question for our reflection, there's several, but the first one is just, have we really put our trust in him? Remember that line from Hebrews 11, that without faith it's impossible to please him. But anyone who comes to him must believe that he is and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Let Rahab stand as, a, as an example to you. And let's all just take that step of, of faith and trust in him. Now many of you have trusted in the Lord for a long time. And so you're already in the family of God. And uh, you, this is just like maybe reminder for you. And if that's the case, then the life of faith continues. The life of trust continues. And what I've found in my limited experience is that The more that I trust the Lord, the more he invites me to trust him more. 
And so the faith steps, they seem to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and I like it that way. I'm loving it, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to keep on trusting in the Lord. So trust in the Lord, or keep on trusting in the Lord. And how is he inviting you to trust him? Remember that because of Rahab's uh, trust in the Lord, peace spread to her family and eventually to the world. And then along comes the, 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 uh, the angels in, in Luke chapter 2. Uh, as they sing of Jesus' birth, they say, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Ephesians 2 says that he himself is our peace, meaning that our peace is a person. It's not just an idea or a convention. It's a person. And again, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. So when we talk about peace, Again, like we talked about hope, it's not just a feeling or it's not just a, 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 an attribute. It's, it's actually something to practice. It's a, it's a choice and it's a character trait to practice, to live into God's peace. And when Jesus gives us his peace, he, he intends it in a couple of different ways. He intends for us to have shalom or peace with him, peace with him. And before the cross and before trusting in him, we're at odds with him. But after we trust in him, we are incorporated into his family, as we've said. But it's also like receiving the peace of God for others, right? And this is part of our responsibility, our holy calling, our sacred calling as a part of God's kingdom of royal priests is to carry the peace of God to our world. We talked about this at length in our prayer series as well, but... um, Part of what it means to carry God's peace into the world is to be a non-anxious presence in a world that is filled with anxiety and filled with fear and filled with all kinds of really negative emotions. We are the kinds of people who are able to steadily bring God's peace into the chaotic world in which we live. And so you receive peace with God. You also receive the peace of God for others. So I guess the question to to end on or... um, Yeah, the second to last question anyways, is how is Jesus inviting you to make peace this Christmas season? As I was praying about it, I think that this may include you offering forgiveness to someone. It may include me offering forgiveness to someone, right? Um, Reconciliation is at the very heart and the very center of the cross and the whole advent of Jesus, And so bringing peace may mean offering forgiveness. Bringing peace or making peace might be, um, again, elevating someone who is a second-class citizen or someone who's on the margins of society. How, How is Jesus inviting you to make peace? It's very easy for us to hear these words and hear messages like these and go, yeah, that's a nice idea. Andrew, how are you making peace? But I want to turn the question back on to each of us, that we would each carry the responsibility of carrying God's peace into the world. So how is God inviting you to make peace? Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone that you, in your life that you need to elevate? Also, um, keep your eyes out um, on the lookout for God to do the unexpected. Right? This, if we learn anything from Rahab, It's that God will use literally anyone who will trust in him. 
And despite there being sort of this really unexpected person and this really unexpected uh, way or job, God is using them in a powerful and profound way. So keep your eyes on the lookout for God doing the unexpected. And then finally, how is Jesus inviting you to actually trust in him? So how is he calling you to, to bring peace and how is he inviting you to trust in him? Again, like I said, in my personal life, I've seen that the steps of faith seem to be getting bigger and bigger. And that might be the case for you. Maybe what you need to trust God in this year is a bit risky. It feels a little bit like Rahab's risky decision, whether to tell the truth to the king or to align herself with Yahweh. So maybe your faith step seems risky. Maybe it sort of defies conventional wisdom, but it also calls you out into the deep where God is. And there is uh, this beautiful reward on the other side of trusting in God for big, risky things. And I've seen it again and again in my life, and I'm sure that many of you could come up here and give testimony of how he's done the same. Will you be one of the courageous ones like Rahab? One of the heroic ones like Rahab, who trusting in something that you cannot fully see yet, but God has said that he will do. I want to leave you with one final thing from Jesus. This is just in the moments that before Jesus goes to the cross. He says, my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And I just wonder how many of us came into uh, this Sunday just with worry and anxiety and fear. And the word that Jesus wants to give you today is just to simply live into or lean into his peace. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. He's offering something to you that the world cannot give you because they're not him. And he can actually say, do not let your hearts be troubled and mean it. It actually has power. He can actually say, do not be afraid, and it actually have power, because he is the one who's offering real and true peace. So as we close, I just want to invite you uh, to pray that in with me. So would you please stand with me and let's pray.